Well, and as you take your seats, do take your Bibles as well and turn in them with me to back to John chapter 16 as we continue on with our Christmas season here and our Christmas series, looking at the glory of the gift that our Savior Jesus Christ has offered to us. That's going to be our topic for today, and I'm looking forward to digging into the Word of God and seeing what He has to say. Now, if your Christmas day turns out anything like mine, chances are going to be pretty high that two weeks from tomorrow, you too might be studiously bent over instruction manuals trying to put incongruous pieces together. Gifts will come out of boxes, pieces will fall into our laps, and the great assemblage will begin. Now, whether your day looks anything like mine probably depends upon the age of your children. But once you get the picture, and that's this, that good, oftentimes good gifts require that we be able to to put some pieces together. And here in these verses in John chapter 16, Jesus is going to be putting the pieces together of His very good gift together for us, so to speak. You know, last time that we were together, last week, we saw the profound reality of the good and great gift that Jesus has given to us in the person of His Holy Spirit. A gift, as we said, that is nothing short of a game-changing, revolutionary, transformative spiritual presence that has now been planted within you if you have believed in the person of Jesus Christ. You have this gift resident in you if you have believed. But starting here this week and in the weeks to come, Jesus in these coming verses is going to explain to us the different ways that the Holy Spirit functions and why that matters to you. These are, if you will, the official assembly instructions that help us know how to use this great gift. And they are, therefore, for us very critical words indeed that I hope will not only be an encouragement to your heart to know that you have this one, but to be enabling to you as well to know how to use the presence of this Spirit in your life. But exactly where those instructions begin here in chapter 16 might be just a little bit surprising to you because they were very surprising to me this week as I opened my Bible and began to study this text. That's because we tend to think of the Spirit as being a gift only to believers. And after all, you can't have the Spirit if you haven't believed in Christ. But the reality is that while the impact of His work is reserved for those who have believed, the benefits of His work extend beyond the church. In a very real sense, the Holy Spirit is not just a gift to us, He is also a gift to the whole world. And this text, these next four verses in front of us this morning, are going to teach us exactly how the Holy Spirit is a gift to the whole world and what that means to you. In fact, this is the only text in Scripture that talks about the Spirit working in the world. That's actually quite shocking because every other text where the Spirit's work is referenced, it's in the context of His ministry to believers. This is the only one, according to commentators, that references His ministry to unbelievers. 
As one commentator has said, that makes this text a very important passage. Because it's here that we see that the Spirit is not just the domesticated auxiliary of the church. He is a powerful advocate who goes before the church to bring the world under conviction. You see, and that, my friends, is extraordinarily important. Because without the ministry of the Holy Spirit first convicting the heart of sinful man, there is no ability in and of themselves to ever turn and believe in the person of Jesus Christ. It's as the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of a sinner to the reality of their sin and regenerates their heart, making them new that now they are able to believe in the work of Jesus Christ and cling to what He has done on their behalf. All of that is a function of the Spirit's work as He brings us to a place of saving faith. And if He did not do that work, if He had not been a gift given to the world, then that work would not happen. And therefore you and I would be lost in our sins and dead in our trespasses, never able to come to a place where we place our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's only as the Spirit of God convicts the heart of a sinner. It's only as He does His work in the world that you and I are able to know the salvation that Christ died to provide us with. And this, this is the reason why we say the Holy Spirit is a gift to the world. For if He did not do His work there, none of us would be in here. And so He is a great gift indeed, and that's what we're going to look at here this morning. Let's start by considering the nature of this work of conviction before we move on to examine the substance of it. We'll take this passage in the order that Jesus gives it to us in, and that means we have to start by looking at the nature of His work of conviction. And right away, we get a summary of this work there in verse 8. You can see it. When He comes... Speaking of the Helper, Jesus has just finished telling, if you recall the context, He has just finished telling His men that when He leaves, He will send the Helper. And when, now, the Helper comes, here's the first thing He will do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, it's very important for us up front to explain something about this verse. It's very important to recognize something about this verse. This verse is not talking about the conviction of the Spirit in the life of a believer. It is talking about the conviction of the Spirit in the life of an unbeliever. It is true that the Spirit of God is the one who convicts you and I, those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ. He does do that. But that is not what this verse is talking about. And if you get that confused, if you miss that, then it becomes very easy to confuse and jumble up these verses very quickly. We're talking here about the way that the Holy Spirit brings conviction to those who have not yet believed in Christ. And I want to make sure that that is very clear up front so that we can understand accurately what Jesus is saying here in this text that is before us. So, now that we've gotten that word of explanation out of the way, let's talk about what this conviction is. What's the nature of this work of conviction? 
Well, the term that Jesus uses here is a term that means to demonstrate that someone has broken the law and to produce the proof necessary to uphold a verdict against them. Let me say that again, perhaps in a little simpler, shorter fashion. Conviction equals proving a transgression. That is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of an unbeliever. You know, in the ancient world, this term conviction was a term that often got thrown around the Roman law courts. And, and in their world, the work of conviction in their legal system was a critically important work because you see a judge or a Roman governor was not able to try or even hear a case if there was not first an advocate who was bringing an accusation or making a charge, and it was the job of that advocate to furnish sufficient proof to the judge to make a conviction. And if someone were to bring a case, but they didn't have the the necessary proof to see it all the way through, well, then that lawyer's career was effectively ended in shame and poverty as he was exiled out of the city which went a long way to stopping frivolous lawsuits in Roman society. Because if you brought a lawsuit and you did not succeed in securing a conviction because your proof was insufficient, out you go. And that was the way that they prevented people from just bringing stupid random lawsuits against one another. Not a bad idea, come to think of it. But this, this work of, of conviction, you see, It was a very important work. Today, in our legal system, we would call this kind of an individual a prosecuting attorney. And in their world, the prosecuting attorney had to have the offender dead to rights before you'd ever even bring a case. And that right there is the idea here in this text, where Jesus is saying very clearly, the Holy Spirit... He has got the world dead to rights. He's got all the evidence necessary to prove wrongdoing. He's got plenty of documentation to go ahead and bring his case to trial. And that's what the back half of the verse teaches us. He's got men concerning their sin. He's got them concerning their lack of righteousness. And he can prove that they deserve judgment. On every front, the Holy Spirit has got mankind pegged. But... Before he hauls sinful men in front of Judge Jesus, who, by the way, his judgment is not only just, as we've been told in John 5.30, but is also true, as Jesus says in John 8.26, the Holy Spirit, this prosecutor of sorts, he does something else. And this is where the gift comes in now. See, though he has the right to light us up in the courtroom of God's justice. According to verse 8 here in chapter 16, that is not what he does. He doesn't run straight to the bar and file capital punishment charges. No. What does the text say that he does? He, He brings his case, but not to the judge. He brings it to the world to the very offenders against whom he has compiled his case. See, despite what mankind deserves, this isn't a picture of the courtroom yet. It's a picture of really more of the interrogation room 
where there in the quiet, dark recesses of a fallen human heart, the Spirit proceeds to lay out His case against a sinner. As metaphorically, the Spirit begins slapping evidence down on the table in front of us. Sin, guilty. Righteousness, absent. Judgment, coming. But then, rather than condemning, which is what you might expect, he spreads out on that table before sinful man an offer of life. A plea deal, if you will. An opportunity to receive life where the Spirit convicts you and tells you, I know that you're guilty and you know that you're guilty, but here is the life that I am offering you instead. See, it's the Spirit of God who opens the eyes of man to the reality of who they are in their sinful condition. He is the one who grants you the faith to believe in the work of Christ on your behalf so that now you can believe and be saved. See, that's the work of conviction that the Spirit does. And in His mercy, He comes to offer you one who was a miserable convict away right off of death row, a place that you didn't even know you were to begin with. And that's the reason why this work of conviction, we say it is a gift and not a curse. His conviction, it comes to individual sinners first before the case ever even goes to the judge. And my friends, that work is just so very important because if you go back and look at a text like Ephesians chapter 2, for instance, we're told there that we as sinful fallen human beings are blind to our transgressions. We are dead in our sins, utterly powerless to make any sort of minuscule movement over towards God. You see, we have no capacity to move to Him. We don't even have the capacity to perceive the condition that we're in. But in steps the Spirit of God here in John 16, 8, and He does His work of conviction to open my eyes to the reality of the condition that I'm in, to open my eyes and quicken my heart towards the beauty of who Jesus Christ is, and to impress deeply upon me the fact that if I do not turn and repent and cling to Christ because of my sin, then judgment is coming. That is the work of the Holy Spirit out in the world. And that is so very important for us to understand because He alone is the one who has the power to convict and to save. Your regeneration, as we're told in the book of Titus, depends upon Him doing His work of regeneration in you first. See, salvation is the fruit of the Spirit's work in your life. And with it, faith is now possible. Without it there can be no life or movement to God from you. See, that's why we say He is a gift. He could convict, but instead He comes to you and He offers you a way of escape. Now you say that's really important for those who are unbelievers to understand. And I I get that. But that's also a message that is really important for us as believers to understand. And, And believe it or not, the primary target of this text, even though this is talking about the work of the Spirit towards unbelievers, the primary target is not unbelievers. The primary target here is that Jesus is talking to believers. He is talking to his followers. He is talking to his men. 
because he knows good and well that he has just placed upon the shoulders of these men what we might call mission impossible. And on their own, no one was going to give them the time of day. No one was going to listen to them. There could be no regeneration or salvation if these men are left to go out and just bear witness on their own. After all, in the context of this verse, Jesus has just finished a few verses earlier telling these men that now they must go and bear witness. Chapter 15, verse 27, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. See, that is what he has called these men to. It's also what he has called you and me to as well that we would bear witness about the work of Christ. But what ability do we have to bear any witness and for anyone to give us the time of day if all it is 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 our word against the word of this world? See that right there. That is where this gift of the Holy Spirit going out before us and doing his work of conviction in front of us becomes so very important. See, Jesus has had just told these men that they were going to go on to stand before priests and kings, rulers and philosophers, this ragtag bunch of lowly, humble fishermen were going to stand before the elite, sophisticated rulers of their age and testify to the glory of Jesus Christ. What hope could they possibly have to outsmart such smart people? What power could they possibly have mustered to bring to bear upon such powerful people? The short answer is they had no intelligence and they had no power to accomplish this work. It would only be as the Spirit of God went before them doing His work of convicting the hearts of their hearers that any conversions would be possible at all. And that's the reason why Jesus' statement here is framed up for these men as an unavoidable promise. Look at what He says. When He comes... Jesus has just finished explaining that he is coming, and when he comes, here's the promise, he will convict, which, my friends, takes an awful lot of pressure right off of your shoulders and mine in evangelism. See, I don't have to have all the right answers You don't have to be some sort of mastermind theologian before you go and engage in the work of sharing your faith. Because the power of God unto salvation in you bearing witness isn't actually on you. That's what Jesus is teaching his followers here in this verse. And that's what we should take away from this verse as well. He alone, as the one who brings conviction, has the power to deliver salvation. That is His work. He does the heavy lifting. It's up to you and me to just simply be faithful to bear witness and then stand back, watch and pray and trust as the Spirit of God does what the Spirit of God does, which is to bring the human heart into alignment with the glory of Christ as He does the work of conviction. You know, I remember learning that lesson the hard way on a dark night in college where Michelle and I were driving home for the holidays and my car proceeded to break down that trusty old claptrap. And when the tow truck showed up, we both piled into the cab to get to the next service station where we could get the help that we needed. And on the way, we told the cab driver, the the, the tow driver, that 
that we were going home for the holidays from college, and he asked what we were studying. And with a gulp and a shame-faced expression, my one-word answer was, Bible. And then I froze, because I didn't know what to say next. You know, I might have gotten straight A's in class that semester, but I got a big, fat F out in the field over the Christmas holiday. And afterwards, Michelle quietly asked me, what happened to you back there? (laughs) For a guy who loves to talk like you, why didn't you share your faith? And there I was, Bible major at a Christian university with no good answer. And the only thing that I could think to say was, because I was afraid that I was going to mess it up. See, I had yet to realize the truth of John 16, verse 8, that the power of God to save in evangelism doesn't rest on me. It's the power of God's Spirit to convict. And so I had taken this enormous burden upon myself that frankly just didn't belong there. It belonged on the Spirit of God to do His work. My job was just open my mouth and share the glory of Christ and what He's done in me. Now, this is not to say that you should not be prepared or that what you say just simply doesn't matter. It is to say, though, that God God is going to do His work in spite of you. And realizing that takes an enormous load right off of your shoulders. See, we need to be faithful to remember, just as these disciples did, the truth of this verse, that God alone has the power to convict the hearts of a sinner. And praise God, we are not that spirit. We are simply tools in the hands of that spirit. So we speak the truth, and then we trust, we pray, and we watch him work. And here's the really good news now. Your job is just to open your mouth and bear witness, as Jesus has said here in this text. And the good news about that is that the message he has entrusted to you is of the simplest sort. It is so very utterly clear and simple that even a child can get this right. You say, okay, well, what is the clarity of that message? What is the simplicity of that message that Jesus says I'm responsible to share? Well, that's what Jesus explains next here in verses 9 through 11. In fact, the message is so clear that it can be boiled down into three simple single words. Point one, sin. Point two, righteousness. Point three, judgment. And there's nobody in this room who can't remember those three words. So what is the substance of the message that the Spirit of God uses to convict in the hearts of sinners? See, it's very interesting in this text as we move on into verses 9 through 11, how specific the message of the Spirit is. The preposition concerning here in the original language is used six times. This verse, verse 8, reads there, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and concerning righteousness and concerning judgment. Concerning sin, verse 9, concerning righteousness, verse 10, Concerning judgment, verse 11. Six times he uses that word concerning there or about. See, the Spirit of God doesn't have all kinds of messages that he just flings out all around the world. No, he's got three very simple categories that he uses to convict the hearts of unbelievers concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. And if the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world is to convict them of these three things, 
then don't you think this ought to be the backbone of our message to that lost and dying world as well? If you and I are just simple tools in His hands, then we should probably align our message with His, should we not? Well, in order to demonstrate to you what this looks like in the field and how it plays out in real life, I've already shown you how I failed. Let me show you how Peter, being filled with the Spirit, succeeded. It's very interesting to note the pattern that we find over in Acts chapter 2. Now, last time that we were together, I concluded our time by reading an extended portion of Acts chapter 2 for us to show the power that came upon these men when they were filled with the Holy Spirit to demonstrate that he indeed was a gift. And you, you remember that story, don't you? Where Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and he pours out a sermon that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and the hearts of 3,000 people are convicted by the Spirit of God. And on that day, they come to know Christ through the testimony of Peter. But do you know what the heart of his message was? Do you know what his three main points were, as any good preacher ought to have, obviously? I'm just kidding. Listen very carefully, and you will see the pattern that Jesus gives here in John 16, 9 through 11, reflected in Peter's sermon over in Acts chapter 2. Point one from the Apostle Peter, sin, specifically the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. He says, you people, by the hand of lawless men, the Romans, crucified and killed him. That's point one. You sinned. Point two, as you keep working through his message, is righteousness, specifically the righteousness of Christ. He appeals to this Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was approved by God, the perfect standard. Sin, now righteousness. And then his final knockout punch is, you guessed it, judgment. The judgment of those who remained in a condition that is hostile towards God. He appeals to these people, so save yourselves from this crooked generation because judgment is coming. And the result of him sharing that very simple outline, Acts 2.37 tells us, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Is that because Peter was so very eloquent? No. It's because Peter's message was in line with the work of the Holy Spirit as he convicted those unsaved people listening that day about the reality of sin, that's who they were, the reality of righteousness, that's who Christ is, and the reality of coming judgment. Here's what's coming towards you. And that's really the outline that we need to make sure we understand. And that's the way to remember it. Sin, who you are. Righteousness, who Christ is. Judgment, that's what's coming. Now, I want us, in the time we have left this morning, to look at each of these just a little bit more closely. Because I think for us as a church, this is very fitting for us to be going through this material right now. The holidays are upon us, which means we have multiple opportunities with those we come into contact with to bear witness, to share our faith, just as Jesus has called us to share it. We have family that will be coming into town, perhaps, or friends or people that we're interacting with, and doors will be wide open to talk about the reality of who Jesus is and, and what he's done. I mean, for crying out loud, the holiday is called Christmas after all, right? If that's not an open door, I don't know what is. So what should our message consist of as we seek to bear witness? Here it is. Ready? Point one, who you are. 
And that's what Jesus says there in chapter 16, verse 9. He says, the Spirit is going to convict concerning sin because they do not believe in me. See here, Jesus gives us the reason why the Spirit must convict of sin. It's because mankind is born into the world not believing in him. And that right there, that is the root of all of our evil sinfulness. There's an urge in the human heart that is hardwired there by the fall to put myself at the center of everything and refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Lord over anything. It's to put myself upon the throne of my life and to knock God out of the way. See, it's because we do not believe in the Lordship of Christ that men love their sin. And here's the truth. If the Spirit of God had never been sent from the Father and the Son, you would have no capacity at all to recognize your own sinfulness. Sure, you might be able to acknowledge that you did wrong here or that time over there, but you would never come to a place where you perceived the reality of your total depravity or the gravity of your offensiveness before a holy God. You would be utterly clueless about the greatness of your offensiveness to God and His holiness. And that's just in keeping with who we are as human beings. We've got a really bad tendency to overlook things in ourselves that we don't like. It's true physically, and it's also true spiritually. Scientists have called this the, the mere exposure effect. What that means is that physically we get so used to an image, perhaps it's the exposure of ourselves in a mirror, we get so familiar with it, we're just always looking at it, we get so consumed with what we see there that when something changes, our brain has the ability to white it out completely not even perceive that there's a problem there. I mean, perhaps some of you gentlemen have had an occurrence where you've had something stuck in your teeth, for instance, and you go into a restroom and you look in the mirror, you don't see anything, and you walk out and your wife says, how could you have missed that? Well, it's because you're so familiar with your own reflection that, that you can't see the change that has occurred there. You can't see the reality of what is there right in front of your face. But then someone takes a picture of you from a slightly different angle that you're not used to seeing yourself from. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, <laughs> that's a really big problem that needs to change. Right. That's true. Physically, we can just zero out things that we don't want to see. But it's also true spiritually as well, you see. As human beings, we are born into a condition where we just cannot perceive the offensiveness of who we are before God. And it's not until the Spirit of God shows up and He holds up a photograph of us that now we can see the reality of our depravity before God where once we might have looked in the mirror, so to speak, and saw our old familiar depravity and said, well, I'm not really that bad. When the Holy Spirit engages in your life, His conviction holds up a wanted poster, a photograph of who you are as the dead, decaying sinner that you were, and you are forced to say with Isaiah in that moment, woe is me, because now based upon the sight of what he has shown me, I am undone. See, he is the one who shows you to you as you really are. And so our message to the world must begin where the ministry of the Spirit's conviction begins. And that's with this. 
We all are born into sin and unbelief. And you, my friend, my neighbor, my unsaved co-worker, have a problem because of that. That's point one. That's the bad news. But wait, there's more. And it's really, really good news. Because if the Spirit convicts us about who we are, He also goes on to convict us about who Christ is. And that's point two. Righteousness. You see, the answer to sin is to look at the righteousness of Christ. And that's the second point in our message, where we have failed miserably and fallen into sinfulness. The Spirit now shows us Jesus, perfect Jesus, holy, righteous, Son of God, Jesus, fulfilling all of the expectations of God where we could not. Righteousness, specifically His righteousness, in place of our own filthy rags. And that is where the ministry of the Spirit in the life of the unbeliever becomes so very important. It's because of what Jesus says here in verse 10. The reason why the Spirit must, con must convict concerning righteousness is because I'm going to the Father, He says, and you will see Me no more. How is it that an unsaved person is able to see the reality of who Jesus Christ is? He's not here anymore in the flesh. From the time that he has left until this very day that we stand here today, the only way that a sinner can perceive the reality and beauty of who Jesus Christ is, is if the Spirit of God opens their eyes to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. For after all, he's no longer here. He is in heaven. And the only way to perceive him in the reality of who he is, is if the Spirit of God impresses the reality of who he is upon your heart. And that's why we must proclaim him trusting that the Spirit of God will do the work to open the eyes of those who have yet to believe. You know, anyone can hear about Jesus and acknowledge, huh, interesting historical character with some very powerful ideas, and then walk away with their life completely unchanged. Well, they've acknowledged the historicity of Jesus, but they have not truly beheld Jesus because the Spirit of God has not convicted them concerning the righteousness of Christ. And it's that Spirit's work that is all the difference between you looking at Christ saying, huh, interesting guy, and saying, you are my Lord and my God. See, it's the Spirit of God who opens your eyes to the truth of your sin. And now you can behold the righteousness of Christ. And so our message should reflect those realities. Point one, you're a sinner but Jesus is sinless. Our gospel message, our testimony for Christ, it's so very simple. Do you not see it? I have sinned, and Christ alone can save me. So now that we understand who we are and who Jesus is, there is going to be one final piece to the Spirit's conviction, and Jesus gives that to us here in verse 11. Who we are, who He is, but now here's what's coming judgment. Jesus says the Spirit will convict, He will prosecute, He will convince you of your guilt concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. See, it's the Spirit of God who enables sinful hearts to believe that if they do not repent, the result will be the just due wrath of God upon them on the day of reckoning. And the idea, the conclusion of what that judgment is going to be, it's, it's a foregone conclusion. You don't have to wonder 
For after all, the Spirit's already submitted His evidence to you. We've got you. Dead to rights. And so the judgment is going to come. But see, the only way that someone can perceive that coming judgment and, and really see it is if the Spirit of God impresses the reality of it coming down upon them. You know, it's interesting to note here, and this is actually very important, that when Jesus talks about not believing in verse 9, it's in the present tense because they are not believing in me. When he talks about going to the Father, it's in present tense because I am going to the Father. But here when he talks about the ruler of the world being judged, it's a very strong past tense. The right way to really read this verse would be concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged already. That's the implication here. And essentially what Jesus is saying the Spirit is going to do is that He is going to walk into the lives and hearts of those who need to have their eyes opened and He is going to impress upon them that they are on the losing side. The conclusion of what is coming is a foregone conclusion because already the ruler of this world, that Satan, has been judged as being the capital L loser. Game over. Judgment's coming. There is no way to argue with this. And the Spirit of God impresses that upon the heart of those who must believe. You might ask the question, well, when specifically was the ruler of this world judged? This really gets interesting. Buckle up now. Because the day when the ruler of this world was judged, it happened at the very beginning of time. It happened way back in the garden. You all will remember the story in Genesis chapter 3 that is given to us where Adam and Eve, they fall into sin at the temptation of the evil one. And God now comes to them and he promises to provide a way of salvation. And then he passes judgment on the serpent and he says to Satan, here's the day when he was judged. You may bruise my coming Savior on his heel, but he is going to turn and absolutely crush your head. Genesis 3.15 See, that's the moment that has now arrived in this text before us. The hour for the bruising of the Savior's heel has come. Christ, yes, He was going to suffer the indignity of the cross in just a few short hours. He was going to know the horror of a human death, and He would drink to the very last drop the hot wrath of God. But then, then He was going to turn at the moment of resurrection, and He was going to take that heel that had been so cruelly bruised, and He was going to use it to step forcefully on the head of the evil one, crushing him to death. The conclusion of what is going to happen to the ruler of the world, it is a foregone conclusion. He is going to experience his just judgment, and Jesus promised that to him at the very beginning. And now in this text, it is coming to pass, and what that means is that in the future, if you have not turned and bent your knee to the power of Jesus and his righteousness, you will suffer the same judgment that is coming down upon that ruler of the world. This is the message that the Holy Spirit impresses upon the minds of those who need to believe. That they are sinners, that's who they are. That Jesus is righteous, that's who He is. And if you do not turn to Him, here is the fate that will befall you. That is the message of the Spirit of God to the unbelieving heart. And therefore, that ought to be the message of our lips to those we come into contact with as well. 
when we come across someone who needs to be saved by the power of the Spirit's regenerative work, where do we go in the end? We go to this powerful message. Look now, friend, the day of judgment is coming, but the day of salvation has come already. Will you not believe? Why would you stay on the losing side when the victory has already been accomplished for you? See, that's the testimony to which we must now bear witness. And it's that message that the Spirit of God will certainly use to convict the heart of the unbeliever and bring them to saving faith in the work of Jesus Christ. It's the reason why the Apostle Paul says with such urgency in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, that's the simple gospel message that's been entrusted to us. There is so much more that we could share, that we could say, that we could add in about the glory and beauty of who Jesus Christ is. And perhaps God will give you the opportunity to share all of those things. But bottom line, brass tacks. This is the message that the Spirit will use. You are a sinner in need of salvation. Christ is the righteous, holy one from God who has died and been raised in your place. And judgment is coming for those who side with Satan. Turn, friend, and repent. See, it's just that simple. Which leaves us now here this morning with two possible points of application. Let me give them to you as we close. First, If you've never known the conviction of the Spirit until today, as well, there may be some here who have not. I appeal to you directly, please listen to this message. Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe and come to Christ. And listen to this. If you would do that, here's what's happening in that transformative moment of salvation. The prosecutor who has all the evidence in the world to convict you. Now he signs on as your great defense advocate interceding for you with groanings that are too deep for words. And gone are all of his accusations. And in place of his case against you, now he pleads the case of Christ for you. So won't you believe in Christ and come to this great Savior knowing that he indeed is mighty to save? That's the first point of application for those who don't know Christ. But here's the second one for those of us whose eyes have already been opened by this regenerative work of God's Spirit. Here's what this means for you. Friend, now, today, this Christmas season especially, be faithful to bear witness. Remember, you can't talk anybody into repentance. You can't make your neighbor believe. You can't force your coworker into heaven. You can't talk your children into believing. You can't fashion an argument that is so crafty that it creates a conversion. Only the Spirit of God can convict a human heart. And that means something wonderfully freeing and empowering for you, just as it did for these disciples. You don't have to take the burden of God upon your shoulders. You are not the Spirit. He is. 
All you are is a mouthpiece. So open it and speak. You don't have to be a master-minded theologian. You don't have to have all the answers to every question before you are willing to share your faith. The message is just really simple. Sin, righteousness, judgment, and then believe and trust that the Spirit is as powerful as Jesus has promised He truly is. See, that's the point that Jesus was making to these disciples. Where they were weak and incapable of seeing anyone come to know Christ, the Spirit would be strong. And so there was only one obligation placed before these men and before us. Bear witness. And then trust in Christ. Watch what He will do. For we are nothing other than His instruments of truth. But when we share the power of God unto salvation, that is the message of the gospel, He is powerful and mighty to save. So people, share your faith and then pray and watch as God does what He does so mightily to save sinners from their sin and the judgment that is to come through the righteousness of Christ that was provided to us through the coming of that Savior on Christmas. Now, this morning, we're going to turn our attention to a celebration of the work of Christ for us, remembering and rejoicing in, in what He has done on our behalf. And so I would encourage all of you to stand together with us and let's go before the throne of God above and give thanks to Him for what He has done. Well, you may be seated even as we prepare ourselves for our celebration of the Lord's table. And this morning, as we approach the communion table, it is important for us to recognize together that just as it's the Spirit of God that convicts the world concerning their sin and Christ's righteousness, so too is it still the very same Spirit of God who now resides within us that convicts us of our sin and of Christ's righteousness. And that's the reason why we're able to gather together and celebrate the communion table is because we have an advocate who now lives within us. He is the one who convicts us where we have strayed into sin. He is the one who continues to teach us all things concerning the beauty of Christ. And so this morning, as we approach the Lord's table, we need to remember that we are fully dependent upon Him and His convicting work in our own lives to prepare us to celebrate the work of Christ. And that's so very important. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're instructed before we ever partake of these elements to examine ourselves, the expectation being that we would confess the sin that we see there, cling to Christ alone who is powerful and has been mighty to save, giving thanks to Him for what He's done in us, knowing that the only way that we can see our sin or know the glory of Christ is through His Spirit that now resides within us. And so this morning, I would encourage you to take a moment to pray before the Lord and ask that the Spirit of God would reveal any sin that perhaps you've hidden away. When He does, as He surely will, confess it, repent from it, and know that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive all of your sin to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. And then, and only then, are you prepared and fit together to join together 
with the church of the living Christ to give thanks to Jesus for what he's done for you. So as the men distribute the elements of the Lord's Supper this morning, I would ask you to take just a moment to examine your heart, to reflect upon the beauty of who Christ is and what he's done for you. Together, as a church family, we are people who are most grateful for the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, are we not? We are people who are most grateful for the gift of His Spirit who now resides within us, are we not? We are people who are most grateful to know the mind of the Father as we live in relationship to Him, are we not? See, we have every reason to be grateful for the work of Jesus Christ, the one who has made this life possible. You know, the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed, we're told He took bread first. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Our Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning overjoyed and so deeply grateful for what you accomplished on our behalf. You have saved us. You have transformed us. You have equipped us. You will preserve us. And so we are confident that you will also glorify us and we will spend eternity knowing you perfectly. And for this, we rejoice together as your people, as your body, as your family. May our hearts always remember and rejoice in the greatness of what you have done. In the same way, we're told that Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember and rejoice in him together. 1 Peter 1.18 tells us what we ought to be thinking as we go forth from this place here today. The Apostle Peter says, You need to know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are now believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope might always be in God. Let's stand together and sing. In Christ alone, indeed, my hope is found.